Fire, uh, and that's part of the slogan that our network uh, that is worldwide that we're a part of uses, which is spreading the fire of God's love, and, and we have that incorporated into a lot of our uh, mission statements. But the fire stands for the Father Heart of God, which we talked about in the first quarter. This quarter is about intimacy with God and one another. So intimacy is the theme for this whole quarter, uh, April, May, and June, <coughs> and uh, and and. Initially, this first month is on hearing God's voice. And then we'll talk later in the year, uh, restoration of our body, soul, and spirit, and then extending the kingdom through equipping and evangelism, uh, rounding out our, our main core values. But intimacy is uh, very important for us as a church. And today's message, because I'm, I'm not here too often, I have to try to squeeze in a lot. So please bear with me. I'm going to try to squeeze a lot of information in. Uh, it's almost, I could have broken this into two services, two messages, because I'm going to talk about intimacy, and then I'm going to talk about God's Word and God's voice, but they're, they're directly connected. The word intimacy in and of itself is not in uh, the Bible. In other words, it's not, uh, tr- there's nowhere in, in the New King James or the NIV or the New Living Translation. I think it's in the message. Um, so that particular word, if you do a Google search on it, or if, um, not a Google search, but a, a Bible software search. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but the idea of intimacy runs throughout uh, the scripture. Because the word intimacy, it's, it's more of a common word that's used in our, our language a lot today, but not in the biblical terminology. The, the idea of it, the meaning of it, is the condition of being intimate, close association or familiarity, relating to one's deepest nature, essential and innermost. Well, sure, God uh, deals with the stuff that relates to our deepest nature, doesn't he? Right? And the Bible has a lot to say uh, concerning uh, uh, what is essential and what's innermost. And so all through Scripture, the issue or the topic of intimacy is addressed, even though you can't find a, a, like a particular word, a verse that has that word in it. And real quickly, because I, I believe it's important for us to understand that, uh, uh, what intimacy is, there's, there's four types of intimacy. And so if you talk to a, a psychologist or uh, someone who's a counselor, <clears throat> this is real common information. And it's good to know, uh, again, this would be worthy of a whole series. I'm just going to mention this. And there's physical intimacy, there's emotional intimacy, there's cognitive or intellectual, academic if you will, uh, intimacy, <clears throat> and then there's experiential intimacy. So, uh, now when I talk about intimacy, I'm talking about all of those different expressions or forms of intimacy. So physical intimacy would be being physically up close, like... I'm, I'm real intimate with Anthony right now. Are you, are you a, a little uncomfortable, maybe? Uncomfortable. Just a little uncomfortable, all right. So, <laughs> physical intimacy is just being close, right? And, of course, physical intimacy would include, you know, the intimacy that uh, is uh, ordained and experienced between a husband and a wife, you know. And so, sexual intimacy is, a, is a one form of physical intimacy, but hugging a buddy is another form of physical intimacy. It's just being close. Uh, it's important. Emotional intimacy is, is just having close association and familiarity and on an emotional level. And so, um, you know, you can have physical intimacy without any emotional intimacy, can't you? Right? And that's actually not too good, is it? Uh, 
Uh, and you can have emotional intimacy. You can have a, a deep friendship and maybe hardly ever see someone. You know, I feel like I'm emotionally intimate or close to my siblings, but they live in other parts of the country. I only get to see them maybe once a year or every other year. Uh, so emotional intimacy. And then there's cognitive and intellectual. <clears throat> and this has to do with ideas. And this is when you're close or you're in agreement with the thoughts and ideas and the way you think. And so you, you come across someone who thinks like you think and agrees with what you agree with. And, and there's just a closeness. There's an intimacy there. And most people relegate issues of faith and Christianity and God to this type of intimacy. Right. So they think intimacy with God is agreeing to the doctrines of God. You know, and like, and then they think that all the other types of intimacy doesn't have anything to do with God. Well, I'd just like to correct you on that. God wants physical intimacy. In fact, He wants to be inside of you. Alright? Which is more intimate than anybody else can be. Uh, 24-7 for the rest of your life. For eternity, the Holy Spirit is going to dwell within you, right? Uh, He wants emotional intimacy. God is love. All right, uh, and but also intellectual. Is we do want to have an agreement that we understand, and then finally, experiential intimacy <clears throat> is again a one that's maybe not thought of a lot. But um, you can take people from different lifestyles, different economic uh, 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 standards, um, you know, different races. <clears throat> take nine guys, throw them together, put them on a baseball team. And after the season, especially if they win, <laughs> you know, they're going to have a experience. They're going to have a form of intimacy, a camaraderie that it doesn't matter how different they are in every other way. They love being together because they're a team, right? So that's an example of experience. When you go on a mission trip, often uh, we take mission trips all over the world, and we'll start out with anywhere from uh, you know. Uh, eight or ten to twenty or thirty people, and sometimes we don't, they had never met. But by the end of that ten-day trip, there's a bond because you've experienced something together. Well, all of these types of intimacy are important, and um, and we're going to take um, really a quarter of the year talking about developing healthy biblical-based intimacy with God and one another because we value that. Christianity was never meant to be just an outward religious system. It is all about intimacy. Faith is all about our deepest uh, nature and having that intimate relationship. And when you think about what Jesus did, you know, Jesus did not call people to an altar and have them uh, recite a prayer, did He? Right? In fact, uh, Jesus never led a worship service. He did at one point. They went out to the uh, one place they sang some hymns. So, uh, Jesus didn't do contemporary choruses. <laughs> Alright? But what he did do is go up to people and say, Follow me. Follow me. And that is an invitation to a relationship of intimacy. Right? Because that meant. Think about what it meant to Matthew when Jesus said, follow me, or Andrew, or Peter. That meant that they lived with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. And then in addition to the, the twelve, you know, there was, there was a much larger group. And, and I've watched the, the, the series, The Bible. Who saw that? It was a History Channel TV series. You guys don't watch TV, that's good. <laughs> or maybe you do watch TV, but you don't watch Bible TV, huh? <laughs> maybe that's bad, I don't know. It's a great program, the Bible. It's, it's, it takes a lot of artistic license. 
<laughs> the artistic part of it could be questioned, but <laughs> but it does depict the whole, it goes through the Bible kind of rapidly. And then there's the Son of God movie. Anybody see that? Any, one person. Wow. So, oh, was it good? I've heard it. I've heard it. It's really good. Listen, take someone who's not a Christian to that movie and then take them out for coffee or eat afterwards and just talk to them about it. It's just a great opportunity to, to talk about who Jesus was. But in the Bible series, I haven't seen the Son of God movie yet, but in the Bible series, it depicts Jesus interacting with the Twelve. And actually, Jesus is never with a big crowd. And I'm going, wow, he had thousands of people when he did the Sermon on the Mount. Between you know three and ten thousand people, but in in the TV program there's like fifteen. <laughs> that cracked me up. <laughs> and I think it's because it was low budget; they couldn't hire enough actors, <laughs> so and they, and they couldn't have the CG where they could just uh, you know d- uh, multiply them uh, uh, by a computer. But anyway, entering into uh, lifestyle intimacy for the disciples didn't mean that they were just part of the 12. There was, there was also a group called the 70 that after spending much time with Jesus was sent out, just like the 12 were, to different cities to preach the gospel. Uh, and then uh, the term, the disciples, often in the scripture, refers to a group of several hundred that was with Jesus wherever he went. <clears throat> and sometimes it only refers to the 12. So uh, that call, follow me, was a call to live intimately with Jesus and with a group of his friends or his followers. So let's uh, look at this idea of intimacy and how it is talked about in Scripture before we jump into what God's voice is and God's Word. Jesus, in this portion of Scripture, John 17, this is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's where Jesus is praying to the Father. It happens just before He's arrested and tried and crucified. And right now we're in the Easter season. Today is Palm Sunday. And... um, Next Sunday it will be Easter. So this this happened about this time of the year, uh, 2,000 years ago approximately. Uh, And Jesus prayed, I do not pray for these alone, these being the disciples that he was living with currently. Uh, He continues, so he's, he's praying for his disciples who are with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And you know who that is? Us. Because everyone in this room and every Christian alive believes in Jesus through the words of those who believed in Jesus before us. Right? And Scripture itself is the record of those experiences of people uh, uh, believing in Jesus, believing in God, recording it. And so that's how this is the word through which we believe. What a powerful testimony. And so Jesus is praying for you here. And you can take this personally. And this is what he prays. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. A lot of people preach on this and focus all about the world believing. But we have to get this one aspect down, the oneness of of what Jesus is calling us into. Uh, He continues... He says, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Wow. Did you ever read through the Bible and just something... I actually didn't even notice this when I was preparing. But during first service when I read that, I was like, wow, do we really believe that? Jesus said to the Father that the glory the Father gave him, 
Jesus has given to us. Wow! Do I live my life knowing that I have been giving, given the same amount of glory that the Father gave Jesus? I'll tell you, I don't. I don't even know what that means. You know? But it's there, isn't it? Wow! So these things are in Scripture to help us you know, pull back the limitations and go, wow, what does that mean? What does that mean? I, can, I experience the same level of glory that Jesus had? Is this true, Jesus? Is that true? And Jesus says, yes, it's true. Do it. Experience it. Take it. Okay. <clears throat> it's all part of it. Uh, the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect or complete, whole, in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. And so this idea of being one, as unified with one another and unified with Jesus and the Father as Jesus and the Father are unified. That's what Jesus is talking, that's the image or the words that Jesus used to express the idea of intimacy. Alright? Of being so in unity, in union. I'm going to read this from the message, which is a more contemporary translation. <clears throat> uh, it goes this way. Jesus says, I'm praying not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me because of them and their witness about me. The goal is for all of them to become one heart and mind, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So they might be one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. The same glory you gave me, I gave them. So they'll be as unified and together as we are. Just think of this. Jesus is comparing the, the level of unity that we are to experience with the level of unity in the Trinity. Wow! <clears throat> that blows me away. I and them, and you and me, then they will be mature in this oneness. And give the godless world evidence that you've sent me and loved them in the same way that you've loved me. Wow. So the goal is intimacy. The goal is I in them and you in me that they'll be mature in this oneness. Reproducing in our relationship with one another, in our relationship with Jesus and the Father, the same unity that we see in the Trinity, the same unity that we see between Jesus and the Father, and it's not spoken there, but it's implied uh, in, in the book of John throughout, is the person of the Holy Spirit as well. By being in Christ and having Christ in us, we're brought through that relationship with Jesus into intimate relationship with the Father uh, and we share in the unity of the Trinity. But we don't do that individualistically. And in America, we have a high value on individualism, which is good. It's one of the reasons America has succeeded in all the ways it succeeded. But it's also a weakness because we forget that we can't participate in the fullness of the unity of what Christ calls us to if we're not unified with other believers. Alright? Because intimacy is shared with all believers in the church. Just like 
When Jesus called Matthew, it wasn't just Jesus and Matthew for three years. You know, Matthew, I'm your personal Savior. I'm all you need, you know. No, you know what? He thrust them immediately in with a group of, intimately with a group of 12, and he brought in Matthew, which was, Matthew is actually a great example, because he was a tax collector, and everybody else in the group hated tax collectors. (laughs) You know, think about that. These people weren't all in agreement, (coughs) but they learned how to live together. That's the intimacy God's uh, calling us to. Well, this brings us to the part two of the sermon, or uh, section B. This month we're focusing on hearing God's voice because it is the primary, uh, it is one of, if not the primary means by which intimacy is formed. In fact, another word for intimacy is communion. We don't use that word often, but uh, it's a, uh, other than the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, uh, some call it. Uh, but communion, from which we get communication and, and community, it's formed by two words, common and union. Common is that which is shared by all, so it's something that we all have in common. But it's uh, important, it's, it's, it's common in, in that it's shared. Um, and so our unity is based on what we share. Well, listen, this is a big point. Our unity is not based on being alike, but in sharing alike. All right? Matthew and Peter and the Twelve were not alike. One was a tax collector, considered white collar, would be a, you know, would, you know, would be a liberal politically, uh, uh, in his day, Peter was a fisherman, definitely blue collar, probably very conservative. I'm sure they had conversations, all right? But they had unity not because they were alike, but because they were sharing together in something. And that something was a joint relationship with Jesus Christ, with the Father through Jesus Christ. And so they shared alike. So when you bring your all to the table and share what you have, whoever you are, with everyone else, you enter into a community that's not based on our similarity, but it's based on our willingness to share equally. Does that make sense? Because I don't want a church with a whole bunch of people just like me. Do you? Think about that. I would get really irritated. <laughs> I want a church that people have strengths that I don't have strengths. You know? Uh, so that we can work together and become... And that's what the church is really like. Really, you know, worldwide. Uh, and, and it should be expressed that way locally. I've got to keep going. So all of it's done, of course, in relationship with the Father who's, who's the giver of all good things. Communication is the means by which uh, intimacy and communion are developed. So having a solid understanding of uh, communion with God or hearing God's voice is essential. And uh, the other people who teach during this month and this quarter, and for those of you who may be visiting today or just coming uh, um, new, uh, I've been rotating back and forth, and so we rotate a lot of the teachers. And I'm having the other people who teach this month talk about the four steps to hearing God's voice. I think Seth uh, talked about it last week. And talk about the specific ways of how to hear God's voice. I'm talking more about the big picture understanding of 
of, of the connection between intimacy and God's voice, and then what, what, what we mean by God's word and God's voice. All right? So the Bible, what we mean by God's word and God's voice. The Bible, this is absolutely point number one, have to agree on this. The Bible is the only objective, authoritative standard for knowing the revealed word and will of God. Okay? We all agree to that. And when people start talking about hearing God's voice or prophecy or prophetic, um, people get scared. And rightfully so. Because there's been a lot of abuse and misuse of prophecy or people hearing God's voice and doing basically really wacky things. <laughs> All right? But the proper response to misuse uh, is not disuse, but proper use. So in other words, if some people misuse prophecy and misuse you know, they hear God's voice and get things way off the base, it doesn't mean we take that whole thing and throw it out. Right? But we learn how to do it properly. Does that make sense? Yeah. And <clears throat> so that's what we're going to do. So in the Bible, it teaches that God does more than what's written in the book. In fact, the whole Bible is the record of people interacting with God. And so, if you were to say God no longer interacts with people, you are basically contradicting the very premise of Scripture itself. Right? (laughs) And that's why I am very proud to say I am more fundamental than any fundamentalist I've ever met. All right? Seriously, fundamentalists traditionally don't believe God speaks today. They believe it uh, <coughs> was sealed with the written scripture, the canon. So they don't believe God speaks today. And I'm saying that's a liberal point of view. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. All right? I'm more fundamental than the fundamentalists. And I love to tell fundamentalists that and, and kind of get them, I'll start up, call them liberals. <laughs> All right, in a nice way, loving way, right? <laughs> All right, because the Bible teaches God does more than what is written in the book. Here's a couple examples. John 21, 25, John says, There were so many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So in other words, Jesus did, while He was on the earth, a whole bunch of things that are not recorded in Scripture. Right? And Scripture says that. Now why would God put that in the Bible? Because Jesus continues to do tons of stuff that's not written in Scripture. Alright? In fact, there's 7 billion people. I believe that God is active in the life of every one of them. Because God wants everyone to be saved. So he's using every means possible. He does stuff all over the place. Even people that never read a Bible. I've met people that have gotten saved that never read the Bible, never seen a Bible. And Jesus appeared to them. Yeah, and so God's doing it. Like, where is that, you know, in the Bible? Well, I don't know. But it happened. <clears throat> because Jesus is doing all those things. Another place. <clears throat> Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. It says, As it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, everybody thinks that this has to do with uh, heaven. Alright? That's how this verse is normally used. Well, we know we've never even imagined what's prepared for us. But I'd like to kind of ask you to look at the context of that verse. What Paul is actually talking about there right before that verse is the crucifixion. So it was actually something that had already happened, saying that uh, uh, 
the enemy didn't realize what God had planned. Not that the crucifixion wasn't already uh, prophesied in Scripture, but it wasn't clear. Right? And here God, and he ties that in. He says, in fact, I has not seen nor ear, nor ear heard nor have entered in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. That doesn't mean just in heaven. That means for now, too. And he goes on and says, Paul says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And he continues talking about what they're doing in the present. All right. So that verse means as much uh, is as as applicable for what God is doing now as what God. Matter of fact, that's what it's really all about. And if you want to think that about heaven, well, it's absolutely true because you don't have any idea what heaven's going to be like and the resurrection, and neither do I, other than it's going to be right. <laughs> so that's true in the fullness of it. But certainly it's true. So these are, this is a, most of us here probably, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. If you're, if you're coming to this church, you probably believe God speaks today because that's the kind of church we are. But you need to know why that's biblical. Why it is in alignment with Scripture. <clears throat> and that's what the sermon is, is a, is a theological undergirding of that idea. The Bible teaches we are to hear His voice, not merely read His book. <clears throat> Um, John five thirty seven. This is Jesus talking to some of the Jews who uh, were against him. Uh, and keep in mind, the Pharisees and the scribes, uh, if they were a Pharisee, they had memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Memorized! Word for word. And if they were a good one, they memorized all of what we call the Old Testament. Certainly, certainly all of the Psalms, Proverbs, <clears throat> the books of wisdom. All right. Uh, but Jesus looked at him and said this to them. It says, The Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you. You do not have his word abiding in you. Jesus said that to people who had memorized the first five books of the Bible. Wow. Because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Because Jesus is trying to get them to realize that the book is not dead. Alright? That the scriptures is not about what, what, what happened, what happened in the past. You know? It's about what God does, not what God did. Okay? It is accurate historically. To teach us that it's a living word. That the scriptures are to point to Jesus, the person who is standing in front of them. And that they needed to have an experience. They needed to have a relationship. They needed to have intimacy with Jesus in order to understand scripture. And because they didn't, he was declaring, the word of God was declaring, they didn't even know the word of God. Alright? This is why being biblical... A biblical understanding of the Word of God is that if you don't hear God's voice personally and actively in the present, then you're not living biblical Christianity. Regardless of how many scriptures you've memorized. <clears throat> Scripture memorization is really important. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. Are you following me? Am I going too fast? Am I... Help me out here. My sheep, Jesus says, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus never said, my sheep, read my book. Right. Now listen, I am, I am an advocate of Scripture. I, if you listen to me preach, 
I always preach from Scripture. Uh, I start with Scripture, I end with Scripture. Every point is based on Scripture. I love the Scripture. Uh, Jesus didn't write a book. People recorded words that Jesus spoke. And he said, my sheep hear my voice. So does that mean the Bible? Absolutely. But it means more than that. Let me give you an example. The Bible, nowhere in the Bible does it mention me. <laughs> Let alone me starting a church in Vandalia. But I tell you, two years ago, while I was sitting right there, right here, God spoke to me and told me to plant this church down in Vandalia. And I said, no! I'm like, what? I don't want to do that. All right. <clears throat> it doesn't say that in the Bible, but it was something that was... God spoke to me. And, I, and then I take it and it's, I say, you know what? It's consistent with what's written. Because, you know, God actually... Planting churches is, is pretty biblical. <laughs> right? Jesus said, go into all the world. And Vandalia is in the world. So, okay. <laughs> it doesn't say Vandalia anywhere in here, right? <clears throat> I submitted it to people over me in the Lord. It's the first thing I did for almost a year. I talked to a whole bunch of leaders that I have authority over me, and, and they were like, yeah. And it's aligned with God's purpose in my life and, and my passions, and it was confirmed in many ways. And so I can have total confidence that God said that, that that was really God, uh, because I responded to it rightly, and then it's, it's, it's happened. It's, now it's a fact. All right? So that's just one example, and I could just we could t- talk for hours about examples. I wanted to the last uh, few minutes that we have here and talk about three main words in the Greek language that we find in the New Testament that talk about the Word of God. And this will give you um, a framework to understand how uh, it all works together, hopefully. The first word is graphe, or graph. Alright? And I don't know how to pronounce it in the Greek. It's Greek to me. But that simply means what is written. It's used, uh, it refers to God's book. So when it talks about the scriptures, Greek word in the New Testament, graphe, it's God's book. Because it means written. It's used 51 times in the New Testament and translated scripture almost every time. And it clearly refers to the written word of God, and that would be both the New Testament and the Old Testament, what we call the New Testament and the Old Testament. Here's an example of that in scripture, Second Peter chapter 3, 15 and Peter's writing uh, a letter to the churches. He says, Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. So Peter is saying Paul's letters are hard to understand. So if you ever read, you're reading the Bible, and you find it hard to understand... You're in the same boat as Peter, okay? And the early Christians. Does that give you some comfort? Gives me comfort. (laughs) Where was I? Speaking in them some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the Scriptures. And so here's a great reference. I like it because... Peter is, combines the writing of Paul, which we call the New Testament, he wrote most of the New Testament, with all of scriptures. So we have a New Testament basis for accepting the New Testament as part of the whole of scripture. Peter, the apostle, apostolically declared that they're part of 
uh, the written word of God. Does that make sense? <coughs> Great picture of what that is. Uh, second word is a bigger word uh, in that it mean, its meaning is, is more broad, and that is logos. Everybody say logos. Logos. Logos or lagos. Some people say lagos. I don't know. Uh, <coughs> and that is what is meant. Okay, um, as opposed to what is written, it refers to God's message as opposed to God's book, right? And in fact, the message is called the message because that's what logos means. And all through the message, he doesn't use the word word for logos. He uses the word message uh, every time in the New Testament when the Eugene Peterson translated it. It's used 330 times. It's used, uh, translated account, uh, communication, matter. Um, and the definition of it is something said, but including the thought. So it's not just what was written, but it includes the idea behind what was written and the topic or the subject, the reasoning or the motive. All right? And so it's, it's the whole of what was meant by what was said or, or written. So Logos has many applications beyond just the spoken word or the written. It includes the thought process, the reasoning, the intentions. And in fact, John uses it as a title for Jesus. when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word is not graphe, okay? it's Logos. This, this, I, Jesus is the meaning. Jesus is the message. Jesus is the motive. Jesus is the word. All right? And he uses that to uh, equate Jesus with God. <clears throat> and so this shows, especially John's use and many, many of the uses throughout Scripture, shows that it, uh, that logos means more than just what was written, but it means the whole of God's counsel and the whole of God's person as reflected in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this is important. <clears throat> Um, today, especially in charismatic churches, these terms, lo- the term logos gets thrown around a lot. And it's often used as a reference to what's written in the Bible. Okay, so some people say, well, that's a logos word as opposed to a rhema word, which I'm going to talk about next. And, and um, technically, <clears throat> the way that uh, charismatics use this term isn't you know, strictly accurate. But the idea is correct, and so I don't get uptight about it technically, uh, because the idea that Logos is accurate to the objective nature of God's will, word, and ways, and many charismatics, and sometimes me, will talk about the Logos word as something that is, well, this is a Logos word, it's just subjective, it's written. But the written word would actually be the graphe. Okay, if you want to use Greek terms, you might want to use them right. So, but the idea... So this idea of a Logos word being consistent with Scripture, that's a good idea. Because there's another word, which is rhema. And that is what was said, what was spoken, alright? And it refers to God's voice as opposed to God's message or God's book. Three ways to think about it. It's used 66 times. It's translated word, fact, charge, statement. It's usually translated in terms of a spoken word. Utterance, um, uh, matter of topic, especially narration, a command, or a dispute. Now here's a good resource that kind of differentiates between logos and rhema. Sorry if you guys feel like you're in a Bible class, but you are. (laughs) So, uh, the significance of rhema, uh, the Greek word rhema, 
as distinct from logos. See, in the English Bible, you just read word in one place and word in another place. In one place, it's graphe, in one place, it's rhema, in one place, it's logos. And so, you know, if you study the Bible, you can learn the differences and learn where each one is used. Uh, the significance of rhema as distinct from logos is exemplified in the injunction to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, in Ephesians 6.17. So, uh, the author of Vines... Uh, uses Ephesians as an example of the use of the rhema. Uh, and it says here, the reference is not to the whole of Bible as such, but to the individual scripture that the Spirit brings to our remembrance uh, for use in time of need. Right? So when God brings a scripture to mind, or brings a, uh, an idea to mind in the moment, well, that's a rhema word. That's something, that's a sword that you take out for the battle that you happen to be fighting. That's not the library you have at home. Right. See the difference? Okay. Uh, now, I like that Vine says a prerequisite being the regular storing of the mind with scripture. So the more, the more graphe you have... With the logos, in other words, the more written word that you have with the right understanding and then understanding the message and the meaning and the motive that you have stored up in your heart and mind, the more able the Spirit is able, uh, uh, able to use those uh, uh, to, to bring to remembrance when you're in need. All right? So when you have a decision to make or a confrontation that's happening, or a temptation, you can have a, a scripture, or you can have a revelation, you can have a word of God, because you've stored it up in your heart. Thankfully, God doesn't limit himself to what we've memorized, though, because he can speak whatever he wants to us, whenever he wants, and he does. All right, <clears throat> so today, uh, the term rhema is often used for a personal word that someone hears from God. Again, that's an idea. Uh, that the word is, is, is meaningful for the present. God is speaking to you in any number of ways. It may be through your conscience. It may be through revelation. It can be through counsel. It can be through a prophetic team. Uh, not many churches have this. We have a team of people trained how to hear rhema words for God, from God for people. And so we share that. Um, and God does that. And you're supposed to hear from God every day. It doesn't mean you will, but that's, you should. Why? Because you're supposed to be intimate. Alright? And people with a good relationship of intimacy, they communicate. So, now listen, this is very important. Almost done. All rhema words must be submitted to the logos. Okay? The meaning, the motive. And must be defensible with the graphic. In other words, the written. Everything you hear from God must be consistent with God's words, God's will, God's ways, and able to be proven by what is written. And that's how it works together. And when that doesn't work together right, when people get rhema words, but they don't submit them to the logos, to the meaning, uh, to the motive, to the person of Jesus Christ, uh, the clear understanding of God's word, and to what is written, then you get out of balance. But when you have all three of them working together, you'll have healthy relationship with God. You'll know how to live. Intimacy is built with communication. Uh, my question to you, and I'm going to have Anthony come up and just lead in a short time of a of response, is are we, intimate, are we intimate enough with God to be reading His book, to know His message, and to hear His voice? Uh, receive Anthony.
This one on? There we go. So we're talking about hearing the word. Huh? Huh? Yes. All right. Lord, thank you for that time. It's good to know why we believe what we believe. That's very, very, very important. And uh, as Pastor was talking, I was thinking about nine years ago when Anthony did not believe that the gifts of the Spirit were for today. He was not, you know, charismatic. And I would hear a message like this one, and I would just have that feeling in my gut that was not pleasant because messages like this were extremely challenging. I didn't want to hear that. There was fear accompanying that. It was, it was turmoil really in my chest because I was thinking, no, 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 can't have that. It's the Bible, only the Bible. And eventually, the the active living. Word of God won me over. But I want to lead us in a challenge today. Are you guys willing to take a risk this morning? Who's willing to be risky? Let's take a risk. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment. Lord Jesus, we trust you. We trust that you are good. We trust that you are speaking. And God, I will, if anyone in here has not met Jesus and trusted Him as the Lord, as the Savior, as the living Word of God, then we just take that opportunity now and we say, Lord, I trust You. I trust You to be my Savior. Be my Lord. Speak to me. I want to hear what You have to say. Be the Lord of my life. And let's take that risk. If you haven't made that commitment this morning, let's make that commitment. And let's start that journey of walking intimately with God. If you know God, and you hear His voice, but you haven't been diligently studying His Word, let's take that risk. Let's risk to find out what the Bible says. Let's risk that we might be hearing some wonky stuff. Are we twisting like Peter talks about? Let's take the risk and memorize the graphe and understand the logos. Let's take the risk and let's get some biblical counselors that are over us that we can submit what we hear. Let's risk that. Let's do that because that'll be good. God, we choose to do that today. If we haven't done it before, we humble ourselves and we will submit what we hear to someone else. And if we just know the word backwards and forwards, but we are not willing to hear the active living voice of God, if, if talking about that just makes all kinds of, you know, small armies are fighting in your stomach when you hear them talk about that like it did for me. God, we let go. We trust you. We trust you today. We trust that you can speak now, and we trust that you can speak accurately. We trust. We want to hear from you, God. I say this morning, I want to hear from you. Yeah. So, God, thank you for what you've done this morning. I pray that you would cause every good seed that's been planted in people's hearts to remain and to grow roots and to shoot up and to bear fruit in Jesus' name. I pray that anything that has been misheard would be cleared up. And I pray that any twisting of words would just be absent. There would just be absolutely clear communication right to people's hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to pray about anything this morning, we're going to have a prayer team right up here. And if we have too many people come up that want prayer, that's just a terrible tragedy. We'll have to have more prayer people come up. So we'll keep an eye for that. No prophetic team this morning, unfortunately. So everybody funnel over here. And you are dismissed. Get your kids. Yes, and we need some good-hearted souls to help set up tables and chairs for pizza, which is righteous and good. All right, you are dismissed. Thank you.
hold on me with his boldness demons flee hell has no hold on me chains undone so suddenly hell has no hold on me with his boldness demons Yeah. 
are my souls with faith, I worship you. You have the sweetest name, you are my souls with faith, I worship you.
Look at the new hot shot. I heard he's Dutch. Oh, I hate the Dutch. Ain't no place for you windmill lovers in this game. Never has been. I know you were a star basketball player, starting quarterback for football. That don't mean nothing now. Those are sissy sports. And that goes for the rest of you. You're going to become a unit. Now let's hop to it. How is this possible to help us? Coach, we're in the middle of a lightning storm. Lightning builds character. You know, when I got here today, I hated you. I was a racist alcoholic. Now that we've done a thousand laps in these bouncy balls, they're like we're brothers. A team. Now we're ready. I'm good. Red, Red Rover, Red Rover, let phrases come over. They just don't like the Dutch much in this part of the country. Yeah, but I'm Pennsylvania Dutch. They're not even Dutch, they're, they're actually German. Well, to some people, Dutch is Dutch. I'm a little Dutch boy, look at me, a little Dutch tulip. <laughs> searching for happiness in God. Okay, you know that's the answer, but how do you feel when really bad things happen? Today you'll see some heartbreaking stories from real students, and Sean McDowell is going to help us figure out how to see ourselves as God sees us. I have a friend that I had that I met uh, in high school, better in our class. First, I was kind of scared of her because she was kind of 
female gothic person and whenever I sat next to her I started talking to her and we became like best friends. Actually uh, at one point she became my girlfriend so I was really close to her and then one day she told me that she was moving to Michigan and I was really sad because she had to break up with me because she didn't like long distance relationships so I was kind of uh, in, in yeah, disappointing area in my life I guess. Um, I was at home one day and uh, she calls me while I'm playing Guitar Hero just chilling and uh, I pick up the phone and I'm like hey actually how's it going and then she just starts like yelling and cussing at me and I'm like what did I do? I mean, I didn't do anything. And she's like, I, I just can't do it anymore. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she just kept yelling and yelling and cussing. And I was trying to calm her down. She just told me that she was sorry and she just can't uh, do life right now. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? I just tell her what's going on. And she's just like, I can't, I can't tell you right now. I mean, it's just, uh, I'm just going through a really bad time. And, uh, I hear like a cock of a gun I'm like Ashley what are you doing and she's like I just can't take it anymore like, Ashley just calm down I'm trying to help you and then she hangs up at that time I kept trying to call back trying to call back no no answer and then finally I get a phone call and it was her mom and uh, her mom tells me that she shot herself in the head and uh, right after she told me all this I told her I'm sorry I can't talk right now I started to cry I like just hung up and got down on my knees and started uh, questioning God like why her why her and like she's my best friend she was my girlfriend I don't know why it had to be her of all people after all this happened um, there was a point in my life where I did not want to go to church I could not like listen to sermons I didn't always sit in like, like church and listen to what they had to say I just thought it was like like wasn't true or anything. I haven't talked to anybody about this. I've never told anybody about story, only my family and none of my friends. Um, I just felt like this was the best way to do it. To ask everybody if they could just pray for me to not have a grudge on God anymore and to also pray for the family of my lost friend. It's certainly understandable that Tyler would be feeling the pain and the hurt and even the depression that he's feeling from the loss of a loved one. That's how we naturally respond. In fact, as soon as I saw the story, I just instantly thought of Job in the Bible who went through the very same thing. He lost his family, he lost his reputation, he lost everything. And he was sitting there asking the same question Tyler was asking, saying, God, why? Why did this happen? And what's so interesting about the book of Job is Job asks over and over again, and God never tells him. He never gives him an answer. Instead, God says, look, Job, where were you when I created the universe? Where were you when I created these beautiful sea creatures at the depths of the ocean? And God's point is, you might not see why, but I'm good. I'm in control. I've never let go of the steering wheel, and I have a plan for this. He says, Job, Job, trust me. You know, I think it raises the question of how, do, how does God deal with our doubts? Is it okay to doubt God? Is it okay to have questions? You know, when I read the Bible, even David, a man after God's own heart, had doubts. I mean, listen to what he says in Psalm 142. He says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I plead aloud to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaints before him and I reveal my trouble to him. 
God can take our doubts. And when we speak that truth to Him, I think that's when God begins to really heal our hearts. You know, I would encourage you, though, if you're in this point where you've ever felt a sense of just being so depressed and that life is worthless and not worth, not worth living, get help. Talk to somebody. Or even if you have a friend and you see just signs in this person's life that they're becoming depressed or you think this person could even possibly take their life, Hey, stand up, even if you're going to get criticized for the sake of this person, and get help, because you really could save somebody's life. Um, my dad had uh, type 2 diabetes. It, it got so bad that his blood sugar was fluctuating so much to where he couldn't see or hardly stand up because when he stood up, the circulation to his legs was completely gone. I pretty much had to, to force him to take care of himself. The night before he passed away, it was just a normal night. You know, he told me good night, and I said, I'll see you in the morning. I woke up the next morning just like I always did. Um, I walked into his room, and uh, I shook him, and he was really cold. The 911 operator, she said, that I needed to start doing CPR. And I'll never forget the feeling of his breastplate cracking. And that's when all everyone was called and we're all at the hospital. And I, I just knew ahead of time before everybody else did that, you know, he wasn't going to make it. And so depression started setting in really quickly. I mean, I kind of wondered uh, why me? Why, why did God do this to me? You know, I thought my dad was going to be here for years to come, even though he had such, so much problems. I still thought I could make it through. I started skipping class a lot because I just didn't know what what to do with myself. I ended up failing two classes because of it. I have friends and I love them dearly, but at the same time, they don't know what I've been through. I need to talk to somebody who's been through this. And it was frustrating that I, I couldn't find anyone who had been through something like that, especially at my age. Um, I was at the Young Life Convention. My Young Life leader asked if I would talk about my dad, and, and I said I, had, I didn't have a problem with that at all. I'm getting up there for my testimony, and uh, I stand off to the side afterwards, and I see people out in the audience crying. And I didn't think it was for me. It, it kind of hit me then that... I, don't, I never had a problem speaking about it. Why not share it with other people who may be going through the same thing? I just really wanted that to kind of consume my life in a sense to, to help others. Because if there's one thing that I ever picked up from my dad is the fact that he cared about more about others than he cared about himself. Ryan is really a remarkable young man. I think all of us can learn something from his life, whether we're going through pain right now, whether you've been through pain in the past, or even kind of preparing ourselves for when difficult times come. Now, all of us, when we go through something just as painful as losing a father, are going to be hurt and have to deal with that. The question is, how do we deal with it? For Ryan, he talked about driving around, helped him a little bit. He kind of dropped out of school and stopped caring. But did you notice where the turnaround happened? The turnaround happened when he shared his story with other people. Instead, when instead of just keeping it to himself, he realized that when he could share it with other people, that they could help carry some of the burden and that his story would encourage other people. It actually helped him to heal. And Paul talks about this in Romans 12:15. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
mourn with those who mourn. We're not meant to bury things aside. We're meant to share them with one another and encourage and really cry with people when they're going through pain. That's when real healing can take place. And I just love how Ryan talked about his father. And I think his father gave an incredible example of what it means to be somebody who really experiences happiness. When he said his father cared about people more than himself. If we live that way, then the burden and the pain we go through really becomes secondary because our life is about loving other people. My story starts pretty much when I turned 16 and I noticed that one of my legs had kind of gotten a little bit swollen and it was hurting pretty bad and so we went to the doctor. And just a couple of weeks after that, we found out that I had cancer. I think I experienced most of the fear was like the fear of the unknown, like just kind of not knowing what, what happens in the medical field. You don't really know what they're going to do to you. And that was a huge fear, I think, for me. You kind of question, you know, why me, why me? But it wasn't so much, God, why would you choose me to have this? Because you're such a horrible guy. It was more like, what purpose is this going to serve in the future? They were completely able to move the tumor after the surgery. And then following that, they did radiation to ensure that all the cancer cells were dead. I would have scans every three months, I think, to make sure everything was gone. And up until almost a year after my radiation treatment, everything was fine. And then in that summer, I was re-diagnosed with cancer in my lungs. Well, um, me and my mom and my sister decided to go to Africa. Well, when I found out that I might have cancer again, it was kind of maybe, should I go to Africa? It was kind of a real quick thought, maybe, and I was like, yes, I should go. So I decided that you know, I'm going to go and do what God originally called me to do. And we decided to go to Zambia, Africa on a mission trip. And it was the most amazing experience of my life. Was, when you have cancer, you get to make a wish, obviously. And I was in the kitchen with, my with one of the men from Make-A-Wish. And my parents were in here with a woman from Make-A-Wish. And they kind of asked you separately, what does she want? And I told them that I wanted to help build an orphanage in Africa. And they were kind of blown away by that. The Make-A-Wish man was kind of confused at first. And then he was like, okay. Hey, if that's what you really want, you know, I've never heard anyone ask for anything like that before, but, you know, we'll see what we can do. I'll talk to the people there, and they got back to me eventually and told me that they had given me $2,600 towards it, which is, you know, the max amount that they give anyone for something like that. Um, so it's cost $60,000 to build one of these orphanages. So when make wish gave me the money, I kind of thought that with this, you know, I could build off of this. You know, this was the first money that was put in that I could build off of this that maybe more people would want to give. All these people have been wanting the story and being out on TV and then offering places to give them money has kind of brought it all in. Well, when I got all the money for the house, I couldn't believe that it had come in at all so fast and that people were so willing to give to someone that they didn't know. Just really amazed at what God did with, you know, my one decision to that he gave me to do this and that he had rewarded me so much for, you know, going out there and trying to get it done. God definitely provided and I was able to. So it's definitely very satisfying. It is so encouraging to hear that Kristen is beating cancer, not only once, but twice. You know, as I look at Kristen's life, it seems like she's just mastered something that so many people haven't. Because there's really one thing that I think keeps more people from happiness than anything else. It's seeing ourselves as a victim. I'm a victim of how I look. I'm a victim of what people say about us. I'm a victim of my circumstances. And that robs us of the ability to appreciate the things that God has given to us in our life and really to live the way that God wants us to live. I mean, I love it that instead of just, you know, feeling sorry for herself, and look, if anybody had the right to feel sorry for herself, it's her having cancer at so young. 
but instead she saw you know the circumstance that happened as an opportunity to just bless and love other people and that's why I think Jesus said when he was talking about happiness he said whoever wants to keep his life or find his life will lose it but instead as in Matthew 16.25 he says but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it real happiness involves not in focusing on the self but in reaching out and in loving other people you know what happens is when difficult times come and when Christians still love and trust God through it it's one of the most powerful testimonies we have to an unbelieving world so if you're going through pain or you're going through difficulty or just struggling to make sense of your happiness realize that as you go through this pain if you can learn to trust God that people from the outside will look in and see your life and you'll be a testimony that God is good and you can have you can change the way that many people think about God and who knows maybe even lead somebody into a relationship with their creator here are a few things to think about from what Sean McDowell said. Be honest with God. He can take our doubts. And when we focus on loving God and loving other people, our own problems and pain can fade into the background because we're living the life that God intends us to live. Take a look at Donald Miller, who wrote the best-selling book, Blue Like Jazz. Growing up without a father made it hard for him to grasp that God was a loving father. My dad left the house when I was... Um probably two, but basically no interaction at all. Grew up in a completely fatherless home. God was referred to as Father in the churches that I went to and in the pages of Scripture itself. So that affected my relationship with God when he called himself Father. Um, he was distant. He was there at one time. He was responsible for creation, <laughs> you know, uh, and then he took off. That leads to uh, all sorts of problems. A buddy of mine and I would break into houses on the street and steal loose change from people's, you know, with the, the coin jar above their dresser or whatever. And I remember once uh, we found a rifle and got the phone book off the top of the fridge and set the rifle against the wall and shooting. It, you know, we'd line up in the living room and shoot the rifle into the phone book. There was also a guy about this time named David Gentiles. He came on as the youth pastor at my church, and he really took uh, his job very seriously. He really cared for us as individuals. And he would be the first kind of mentoring figure that I had in my life. Introduced me to literature, and then noted that I, I took to it pretty well, and introduced me to writing, asked me to write a guest article for a newsletter that the church put out. And I thought, wow, you know, I, I have a talent. That was affirmed by him, and so I wrote for the paper again, and then, you know, it became a career. It became the way that I, that I could matter, and this was right at the same time with me and Roy were breaking into houses and shooting guns in people's houses. It was right at the same time. It was like I was introduced to both at the same time, and the writing stuff with the mentoring being done by David Gentiles was really validating and affirming. A lot of kids, you know, when they grow up without dads, they end up in, in a lot of trouble. And I think he's, he's one of the main reasons that I did it. God is the perfect father who will never leave us. Thanks for watching.